every decision that you make, whether it be business or whatever it is, not all decisions have a financial cost. Some have a cost to your health, have a cost to your time, cost to your relationship or cost to your family. Welcome to the Bricks and Bytes podcast. I'm Owen Drury, and together with my co-host Martin Pekash, we'll be interviewing the people involved with transforming the construction and property industries through the latest and most innovative technologies. Today's guest is Paul Conway of Uno. Uno's goal is to navigate its users through the complexities of the property market by providing free access to market intelligence. Using technology and intelligent data, Uno tracks and maps market changes to allow its users to identify opportunities to optimize their property portfolio. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you end up where you are now? Yeah, so I was born in Scotland, funny enough. Uh, a beautiful town called, for, called Falkirk, which is exactly in between basically Edinburgh and Glasgow. So that's the places you'd like to be, and we were in the middle. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not the best of areas, but a lot of, a lot of good friends and my family are still kind of around there. Stirling, you know, Larbert, Falkirk, Grangemouth up to Aberdeen, you know, and I've got family in London and Sheffield and everywhere. So I guess that, and France as well. So yeah, there's people I know in my family all over the place. But yeah, I went, I worked, went to school and then worked in the oil industry. I did something called fiscal metering, went up in oil rigs, three years in oil rigs, but then always did property on the side as Mm. most, I mean, even people in property do something, property on the side. It's like everything's Mm. on the side. (laughs) You mentioned like, oh yeah, got a QS business, but I'm also on the side just starting. <laughs> Which is usually the this most important journey, right? That you're starting on the side because you kind of figure out that that's something you want to pursue from inside out rather than it's imposed on you. Well, I think it's because you're following something that's like, I'm not happy with what I'm doing or it's not fulfilling me mm-hmm. or I'm interested in something else. So I guess that much like you, like when I started a consultancy firm, this is jumping the story a bit, and then I went into a tech business because mm-hmm. consultancy firms are fine, but they're not, they don't blow your hair back. And I don't know, maybe in a few years I won't have a lot of hair left, <laughs> but it'll be a good time, you know. So yeah, so essentially I worked in our rigs, did property on the side, built a portfolio in Scotland, got in tow with a friend of mine. We did bought in like Falkirk, Lithgow, Edinburgh. And then he moved to London. Uh, he was in the industry as well, so he worked VP and he, he moved to London. And then, yeah, he started Let's Keep It Clean dating an estate agent in Chelsea. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we were shown the way to good deals, shall we say. <laughs> uh, and everybody was well looked after and everybody had a good time. And so what we did was... Especially him. <laughs> yes, he had a great time. Like, I mean, I was happy because I was like making cash and having a good time and hanging about Chelsea, but he had a much better time. So anyway, we bought a flat just off a lower Sloan Street, or just off Sloan Square, just a lower Sloan Street, Chelsea. Really small one's a studio, turned it into one bed, sold it to the freeholder, uh, and then that freeholder backed us for another few developments until the kind of Brexit thing happened. Yeah, and then we did one on Lower Sloan Street, two on Sloan Avenue, and one on the King's Road. I just studios to one beds or conversions of two beds and stuff like that. Yeah, and that's what we did for a few years. And then we're like, 
actually it'd be great to like quit our jobs but like development isn't you know it's like cash mm-hmm. no cash um so we created caledonia which was a social living concept in southwest london so kind of the rent to rent model i guess but tried to make it a little bit sexier but i guess that i mean i'm advising a few businesses around rent to rent at the moment in time and stuff and just like what looks good at the start isn't that great later on. So yeah, the devil's in the detail of the contract, how you set it up, what you're trying to target market, what your margins are, and all the rest of the stuff. And then just general. Then after that, it's just rock hard property management. Yeah, it's, it becomes kind of difficult over time, and you have to get it spot on. And then yeah, so that's that's what what I did, and then created Pitchmo Services, which is a consultancy firm, licensing, planning, design, and fire. Main things that estate agents don't need. Um, there is currently now a dog in the living room. My apologies. <laughs> uh, should have started And then, uh, then that was HMO Service. And then we changed into Uno, which is, I guess, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. But yeah, Uno is a, a tech business. We are half data, half platform. So we aggregate and consolidate and sell really complicated data sets. So things like licensing, HMO licensing, selective licensing, Article 4 planning permission. And then we deliver that by API. And then we also have the platform, which is pretty cool as well so it's kind of a landlord developer platform and it essentially does it's kind of really dynamic it's this dynamic reporting thing which i can explain more and it helps you monitor portfolios and various other things and for businesses it's a bit of a kind of lead generation tool as well okay so like maybe starting in terms of you know if you were described to someone who has no clue about properties and it's not technical how would you what would you say that you know solves Firstly, from the data side of things, the easiest way to explain it is that every country in the UK have different rules and laws and legislation. And then even inside those countries, like um, little localised councils and bits and bobs have local legislation. And inside those councils, you could have one street with legislation and one street without it. So you can imagine that if you're investing in properties all over a country or multiple countries all over the UK, Every time you look at a different property, the legislation is different. Mm-hmm. So we solve that by giving you the answer just by putting in an address and tenancy occupants or something like that. So that's kind of what we did with that data side of things. The platform itself, it builds something out, which I guess is the only dynamics letting report in the in the industry. It's the only lettings report or property PRS report that actually includes licensing and planning permission. What is PRS report, sorry? PRS is private rented sector. Okay. Yeah, and I guess the other thing about it is it's the only platform that compares short let, long let, AST, corporate let, and LHA rates. So essentially what it does when it builds your report is if you're looking at property, what's the best way to manage this property, the best to run this property, and what problems would come into effect so looking at a property, say in Fulham or something like that, looking at this property, how much would I get if I let out at individual tenancy agreements or short let Airbnb? What would be my daily rent for that short let? And what would be my expected occupancy rate, say 54%? And we work all that things out. And then we tell, okay, well, that's great. Okay, I know how much money I'm going to make. Mm. But that's not the whole story. If you change one of those things, for example, you change the location of that property, you change how many tenants, you change short let, long let, any of the one of these changes will change your mortgage product, your insurance product, your planning, your licensing, your certification, as well as maybe the property manager that you use. 
So that's the dynamic nature of it because advice is dynamic. And nobody's actually built a platform that's built on an advice structure. So essentially, when you tell us something, the whole report changes. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the main USP that we, we have. Um, and the fact that we bring all of these questions and answers into one place. And Paul, who are you, who are you uh, targeting as your main customer? Currently, we were fully B2B. And now we do have a B2C strategy where the landlords and investors, developers can come onto the platform. They get like a free use of the platform and we give them some really exciting stuff uh, for free, which I will tell you more about later on. A freemium model? As a freemium model, that's correct. Caught mm-hmm. me right handed. <laughs> freemium model. A little bit of an upgrade in there. <laughs> but let's go for USP number three or four. You can't actually pay to upgrade. If you're a landlord or investor, we get paid through sponsors. So when you pick a sponsor, we get paid. Mm-hmm. So landlords, developers, and investors can actually go onto the platform, monitor their entire portfolio. They can get monitor it for license and planning permission. They get all of the ice. We've got tra- the ice, the advice, the training system, the full functionality, and they get it for absolutely free because we make money through sponsorships and advertising. So that is what we're launching uh-huh. in April, May time. And essentially, it's changing from a B2B model, which it is still a B2B model, but it has customer access to it. And a couple of kind of things that we're trying to combat with, with that is, is like, what can actually a property tech company do to, I guess, add value or, or improve the private rented sector in some way? Essentially, what can we do? Well, well we're offering free licensing checks for entire market. For the whole of the UK, because there's only three companies that do it, mm-hmm. and it's just a bit ridiculous that it's not out there, that it's not free. And it essentially, we the under when we were trying to figure this out, we were like, okay, so the last year the NHS spent 104 billion pounds due to poor living conditions in the private rented sector. Wow, right, 104 billion. So like, and licensing was taken was like created or is created. It's supposed to. Uh, there's a lot of negative press around it, uh, which is understandably so. It's a huge kind of like burden on on landlords with cost and confusion and complexity and stuff. So we wanted to try and take that away. So that's what we can do. And then what can local agents, local like local businesses do for landlords in the time where we've got a massive taxation increase in regulation, leveling up coming into place, all these things. So essentially, we got partners on board and says, look. Here, would you like to sponsor local local landlords and local investors, people who want to invest in your patch? And they're like, yeah, sure. That seems like a great idea. Like, obviously, we want to work with them. And obviously, they need some support at this time. And they want, we were just like, cool, we'll put that together. Mm. See what happens. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> <laughs> Give everybody free shit. I'm sure it'll be fine. Was it just like a personal interest? Was it a, uh, a problem that you encountered? Like, the you know solves a problem that you encountered when you were doing similar things or was this out of uh, some customer discoveries that you decided this was a problem worth tackling? How did you get to that, the idea that this was you know, something you wanted to do? That is, ties into our earlier question, doesn't it? Like, what, like, do you actually wake up one day and you go, you know what, I'm going to solve some really complicated compliance shit that happens. <laughs> in the I'm not sure anyone does that. <laughs> Nobody does that. So, like, you, you do, and we talked about it, like you go, you maybe go to university, you maybe go something else. And it's like, well, 
this is a path that you're like, oh, that seems a bit niche. Like, how did you get in there? And quite an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially, when we went from development into the social living concept, the most boring and arduous part of the journey was actually to trying to get through licensing and planning. And then fire was involved. Mm-hmm. And then we had to change our financial product. And then we had to do this. And landlords were moaning at us because, look, if I classify it as, you know, a shared accommodation and this has got this status here, a planning status, or a licenses status, or individual let status or something like that, I need a new mortgage. And we're like, well, why is that not on a platform somewhere? Uh-huh. Uh, every time you change something, mm. it will tell you that these things are not going to happen. They have to go one by one and go, oh, right, okay, so I need to look at licensing. I need to look at planning. I need to look at my mortgage. I need to change my insurance and all that sort of thing. We know all of this stuff now, right? But we learned it along the way a really hard way. So essentially, based on how you run a property in the private rental sector, all of these things change. So when we were going through it, it was just years and years of like problems and problems and problems. And obviously, the most sensible thing there where you've done property development in Chelsea, you're looking really cool, social living concept, all the tenants are loving you, you're, you think they're the coolest person in the world. That's when you stop doing that and start a legislation law-based compliance company. So you go from really fun to really boring. Good life decisions. That's good life decisions. Always <laughs> go towards that part, right? So that's kind of like where we went. And then we went down a rabbit hole, partnered with some property managers and agents, so like M&P and D&G and, and then now Hamptons and various other KFH and stuff like that. And essentially, London High Street agents are like, Right. As soon as you get to the license and plan and design and fire, we've not got a clue what we're doing. They did have a clue. I mean, mm. they just couldn't scale it, you know? So you could speak to one person and they were like, I know what we're doing, but how am I going to train all of my staff and do this and do that and blah, blah, blah. So then we came, we came in and did all the kind of physical stuff and we got like accredited experts, so environmental health officers accredited by the Chartered Institute of Environmental Health, you know, experienced in local councils. So we're like, okay, well, that's what the council used. So we put them in place. So that became our USP from there. And then HMO Services was like, okay, well, how do we scale that? We're just a normal services company. So then we went through in this mad data collection kind of, exercise where we partnered with a UK-wide data collection partner and gave them a really specific kind of, this is the report we want, we want a 360 video tour, we want these pictures and stuff like that. Because then what we managed to be able to do is offer a UK-wide service on licensing, planning and design Mm -hmm. and give advice on fire, not fire risk assessments, but from one place. And we could not only just do it once, we could do it in six months time, a year time or 24 months time. If you do one data collect, then you don't actually have to go back to the property. So, like, we could efficiently do that. We could do it cost effectively, and we would only have to go into the property once. So, if we collected all that information, it was like being there. So, you could sell them a licensing product, then a planning product, then a design product, and then advice on fire. You'd have to go out and do a fire risk assessment if it was required. But you could also do that multiple times you know as long as nothing's changed in the property you could continue to do that and if somebody asks you some weird question in 18 months time you're like hold on i'll just bring up this video tour and do that so that's how we made that scalable and then we're like okay well i'm bored of that now so the next problem was essentially right before you get to a services company there's a hell of a lot of questions that people ask so how can you make that more efficient to stop all those phone calls happening and all those various other things? How do you build a bit of tech for that to happen? Mm-hmm. And then all the businesses that were using us had lots of questions and difficult things and training their staff and all that sort of thing. So essentially, a bit of tech was required. So then we went down the rabbit hole of building a bit of tech that solved all that. And basically for every 
we would then identify the problem, train, or what we do is identify the problem or opportunity, train them on the property and opportunity and offer them a solution, a marketplace that pulls that whole thing together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how was the journey of creating the tech and what sort of issues, problems did you come across? And how, because you weren't a developer or anyone who was kind of coding and doing this stuff, and this is your own business, you started yourself. So you had to get familiar with this stuff and at least be able to manage people around you who are designing this tech. So that was one thing. And do you guys use any kind of machine learning techniques or anything along these lines to to get this all the data or is it done in a different way? So... I was two and a bit years ago or two and a half years ago, I was what they call a non-technical founder. So, so somebody that doesn't have a clue about tech or engineering or anything like that. So I, I have an engineering background in the, in the oil industry. So I guess that sort of engineering brain helps. And then obviously I knew I was a geek that knew, understood the compliance problem that we needed to solve inside out as well. So those two things were useful. But yeah, from a tech perspective, no. So the first thing, the easiest way I got to explain is when somebody says, oh yeah, you need you need a full stacker. And I'm like, what else? <laughs> so I just check this, check this thing. Was it say a full stacker? It? So a full stack developer is a guy that could code in the front and the back end. Yeah, nice. And I'm like, ah, that's good to know. That was my first part of my journey when I looked stupid, but obviously brushed it off, no problem at all. So yeah, and I guess from that point, it was just a constant learning and we used uh, an external agency. So for like non-technical founders and stuff like that. And yeah, there was good points and bad points for them, but definitely outgrew them really quickly and just got a little bit frustrated. So I was like, well, it's time to like pull in my own team. So I got on a CTO that I knew from school actually, and he built me a team and stuff. So yeah, that was that was kind of lucky. So so that that's I guess how from from my perspective, how from an engineering or you know coding perspective, not don't have that skill, but understand it more and more every day. I guess you know, and I do quite a lot of the product lead stuff. So understanding what the customer wants and delivering it um, to the tech team for them to build. So I do product the product management side of things, and I guess the next question is like, how do you aggregate and solve the data problem? Well, I won't give too much of that stuff away, but essentially we monitor all the different websites that could have changes that we want to change uh, to monitor and then uh, we if any of these keywords or anything like that pop up then we check if that is actually relevant or not if it's a question mark it will get upgraded to an accredited expert like environment health officer or me to review and then if it is something that affects that can affect our clients then we'll pop it into in. Uh, we'll, we'll just we'll we'll chuck it in the platform. But I guess like so so if you want to go super data, we do a lot of kind of geospatial mapping and polygons and stuff. So essentially, on the map of the UK, where are all of these local legislative parts? Well, we draw them out with something called a polygon, and then we use. Uh, longitude and latitude, so an exact location of the property versus where all these layers of legislation sit on top of each other, because sometimes you could be out with all local legislation, but then you could be in three or four bits, basically, based on 
the location of that property versus these polygon maps. So that gives you an answer that says, yep, we've got could have a problem. And then the next mm -hmm. level up is that it's all then logic controlled where you have to build a huge logic flow to say, okay, well, if it's a house and it doesn't matter, but if it's a flat, it does matter. And if it's over three stories, okay, we definitely... And then it's got, oh, actually, it's got to be over three tenants and two households on a long let and not a short let and all the rest of the stuff. So you have to build that out as a massive logic flow uh, mm -hmm. and then and decode then run it so yes it's, so i guess there's a whole there's a gathering part there's like a monitoring part but we don't have any sort of ai to read and understand the legislative part it would be something that we like would we build that or you know the cost of building that for us is prohibitive prohibitive yeah one of those words um do you mean do you mean big do you mean big <laughs> yeah. too expensive <laughs> there we go <laughs> okay so could we use somebody else's ai and uh, there's a lot of cool bits that, yeah we could do we have time to train something and put it into place if we were just no I, for that specific thing um i don't think we would get a return on investment for that mm. do i'm sure you've done it before but you guys can tell me what a uh, what AI is in your eyes, uh, because I guess that's quite a interesting conversation. Hmm. Uh, and then I can tell you what I think it is, I guess, and then whether we would use it. But from my understanding, yeah. what AI is, then I don't think that I don't think many people actually have AI. Like I, I think they have some sort of machine learning thing. I think a lot of people are like just collecting data in the hope that someone could use that data to create some sort of artificially intelligent algorithm or or program or platform or something to help them with their business case. But for me, AI is essentially doing what it's training a machine to do what a human does. So in my own example, like, thinking, training to think based on like a huge enormous data to think and figure out like next steps or possible ways to solve the problem. Yeah. Something like that. So rather than me uh, sitting down, working out costs for a building, I can just give it to my uh, artificial intelligence system and he can do it for me. That That's the ultimate aim, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of uh, where you know is right now, like where are you now in the, uh, should we say the roadmap? What, what's the plan for the next, maybe a year, five years, 10 years? I guess like what you described to me would be machine learning rather than I mean it depends how it comes up with this answer. If it's basing if it's basing due looking at the data that I have, then this would be the most likely outcome, then that would be machine learning. If it could actually think and like a human and, and extrapolate yeah, yeah. something that is human like, I guess that would be more but maybe that's what you meant. Broad umbrella. Broad Yeah, I know. But hey. If we can put my brain in a box one day, I don't think they'll, that'll ever have a good enough return on investment. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Um, right, the question. What was the question again? My apologies. Yeah, the question was where you know is on the map. So what year did you start up? So the business started five and about year, 2018, five, year, five about years ago. And that was from a consultancy model that started two and a half years ago. We started you know the tech arm of the business yeah mm -hmm. and so what's the plan for the next let's say year so essentially we we set out to do one thing then changed it about 100 times and, and because like i guess the, the easiest way to explain the difference between a tech business and uh and a services business is that with a tech business 
you decide on a plan and then a year later you see the result of that plan. But on a service, you say, hey, think I'll become a photographer. And you just put an advert out and then you're a photographer the next day. There's not really much you need to achieve. But tech just takes so long and it's very common that it's like, okay, we start a tech business and then a year or two or three or four in some cases, <laughs> companies don't even launch anything that's like mm-hmm. their final product or maybe launch and fail. So yeah, I guess for for just now, we are, have had paying customers for maybe a year and a half and we are starting to get more and more paid customers um, because I would say that after two years, we had something that was pretty sellable. And then the new version of, you know, as we've chatted about just now is available probably from me. Um, it was April, but I think it's going to be me. Uh, you answered your own uh, statement there, saying it take a lot longer than uh, than what you... Yeah, exactly. One month longer. <laughs> a month is nothing in tech world. No, of course not. It's no, crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. It's like, oh, can we put this button over here? And so like, we put it in the mobile. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but we're both discussing it just now, and the button's there, and I just one over here. Take a screenshot of that, put it on the, the project management tool. It will go through the system. We'll discuss it. And then four weeks later, you might have the button. 50,000 pounds later. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite thing is that if you want a button moved, it will cost you 50 quid. And it's like, it's not really, it just sounds so silly, but like it won't actually take them a long time to move the button. But by the time it goes all through the loop of everything, everything you know, it's mm. like 50 quid for everything. And then like yeah. all this small stuff. And then the next minute, like our tech team is always like, ask them a question. It's like, oh yeah, it'll take two, everything's two days. Nothing is ever below two days. It's always two days work, you know? And then like, if mm-hmm. it's a little bit more common, it's a week. And then after that, that's like a month or two. Um, mm. and, and and that's the standard responses. You know, it never seems to change. So everyone's, everyone's like mm-hmm. a day, a week or a month. Uh, two days a day, or a, two days a week or a month. Yeah, I mean, what you say, I think some people like in tech businesses are doing customer discovery for two, maybe longer years before yeah. they even launch anything. So yeah. Or you can just wait. <laughs> I'm failed. I suppose there's like, I guess a lot of that is no code though, isn't it? So, so you can get that. I mean, one of the big conversations is always code it or no code it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. with no code, you end up having quite a few systems put together. So it's, we do have some plugin stuff and we do have, um, I'm trying to push for some no code tools uh, that are not like core value of the, of the business. Yeah, because it's, it's good for testing, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's okay, if you want to build something that works, I mean, you can use design software and create flows and stuff like that, but yeah. if you want to build something that works, you can build it on no code or low code and have it on a customer's desk within a week or two and then yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. messing around with it and they go, ah, oh, that's crap or that, and you can learn really quickly that way. You know? mm-hmm. How big you know is, how many employees have you got? Um, it's a rather inflated figure just now because we have some Kickstarters in there, which I'm quite in. I don't know if you know Kickstarters. It's a government-funded young people, basically. So we've gave quite a few of them a lot. Like some of them have actually got a job now as well. So really, really kind of rewarding bringing in young people, especially when the government funds the first six months at 25 hours a week. So we've been really mm. lucky to get some of them in there. And uh, well, I guess it's, it's not that visible. There's about 20 of us in the team at the, at the moment in time. So a mix of full-time staff and some Kickstarters in there as well. And yeah, so that's that's where we're all over the place. We've got our office in Clapham Common in London. And then, yeah, we've got people all over the shop, basically, from Japan to India to various other places and, the, and all over the UK as well. 
So the stage of the business is at now. Uh, are you looking for anything particular, any investments or? Yeah, I guess we we have investment. We haven't taken a lot. Some of that was because we had investors, and then then the whole world fell apart two years ago. It's not getting any better. Yeah, it was bad timing for going out for an investment round then. So yeah, we do have some investment in our first round, but then we got the bounce back loan, the 50 grand, and then we got a little grant for the government and the Kickstars, and then we have the services business that's kind of pushed it on a little bit. So yeah, we've been quite lucky that we didn't have to have a hell of a lot of investment. If we had more investment, we could have went faster and mm. a lot less stressful and all the rest of the stuff. Like... If there was investment, like, do I have the time to go out for investment right now? Definitely not. We've got a launch in two months. We can make it. We've got the cash to make it there. And we will just have to see what happens after that. If somebody understood the business and they wanted involved and, you know, like, and they approached me or whatever or having a chat, yeah, and and, and they, they thought they could bring a lot more to the business than just some some cash in the bank, then, yeah, we'd love to have a chat. But there's a huge cost to, to get an investment. So essentially, you are not bootstrapping in a traditional sense, but you're using revenue from the service side of the business to fund the tech side. Exactly, yeah. Interesting model, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, nice. I mean, it's a very good model because you're not giving, it, not giving away much of your business somewhat to someone, right? And if you can finance your activities then that's the best model you can have as as long as you can finance your journey i guess it's it's there's a there's always a way up because you're weighing up control you know so so you two things you're weighing up control of your business and terms and conditions on a on a shareholders agreement <laughs> versus speed and essentially the money that's reinvested could have paid me could be driving out in a fancy car buy now get our house paid off you know it's just like actually holy shit i've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds on 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 a little bit of tech uh and like more to think about that doesn't seem like a great idea but i do have <laughs> yeah it's ownership so and especially when you you're obviously going to spend more equity when your prop when your tech's worthless or you have left revenue on your tech so yeah if you can get to revenue if you can get tech built and to, if you can get a, a sellable tech product um, built without giving off a lot of equity or control, that's where you want to be. If you can be revenue generating and blah, blah, and then if you can be scaling, then your valuation is going to be pretty good and you're going to want, you're going to be thankful that you actually made that investment in yourself and the, the team around you. Mm. Very good. You know, as a prop tech company, so where do you see the future of prop tech? Oh, where do I see the future of prop tech? It's a very broad question, but very broad. You don't have to take it as it as you think. <laughs> First thing's the best. Yeah. Okay, the second one. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that I, I'm not very good at answering straight questions. I usually have to talk a sto- tell a story behind it. So yeah, I guess that prop tech has probably one of the worst reputations for actually being forward thinking and at the cutting edge of technology. And I think that's because largely the customer base isn't, ve- or which would be agents or, you know, property companies or my, aren't, haven't been that technical in the past, but I think that they're expecting more and being more technical. And I, I definitely learned a lot going through our journey where we're like, we thought something was really cool. And, was, and then we're like, oh, actually, that's not that cool. And so we're like, oh, we need to improve on that. And um, But so where, where do I think it's going to go? Yeah, I guess that that's interesting. Like, could property transactions just be based on blockchain or something like that? Mm. I spoke to a guy 
who had studied that for a few years and he studied it under some Oxford professor and all the rest of the stuff and his opinion was was no. There mm. was too many things in the way uh, for it to make it happen. And there is companies out there that are trying to do it. Like, it depends what you're saying. It depends what you're actually, the bit you're trying to solve is like, does the ownership solved on blockchain or is the transaction happened on blockchain? I guess there's, I, I, I don't know enough about it um, to be the same thing, but I think we'd be very far off something like that. I, I would believe. I mean, like the, the way the property industry is going right now, I mean, to the point where we don't, like at the moment in time, people don't even know where they live. Like if you just like, what's your address? Oh, well, my address is uh, flat two three <laughs> to the back left-hand side of building 42. Uh, but you have to go around the side junction there. So it's actually on this address, but the council think it's this address and, you know, something. And it's just like, people have no idea where they live, you know? And, and like <laughs> the postman thinks it's called something else to the tax man. Um, so this is solved by something called a UPRN, a unique property reference number. Um, so, so just mm. like the car, MO, like the car reg, you know, it's a unique property reference number. Now, it's not a complete data set, but it's the it's really really close to for every property in the UK has a UPRN, and our system is built on that. So you have a unique identifier that you can go back to, and what the industry is trying to solve around that is that once mm. you have a unique identifier, if you do fire risk assessment, a gas certificate, an EPC, uh, blah, 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 blah. They should all have that unique identifier. Mm -hmm. So when you look up the unique identifier, you can see all of these things, transactions that have had on the side of it. And then you can link that to, to sales and lettings and blah, blah, blah. And then you can link that to the landlord and who the... The landlord owns this property and these tenants are, you know, letting this property. And, and it's all linked back to one UI, which just isn't... It's just not done right now. I mean, if you look at forward thinking to countries like Scandinavia and stuff like that, you know, it's just yeah. like, it's bonkers. Like, I mean, the level that they've got would be seen as personal infringement of our, of our end, but they have, like, people have a UI. And we, you know, we have a national students number and stuff like that, but this is to, like, a whole new level. Like, that everything's pinned back to what, everything that they do is pinned that. And if you look at China, like, essentially, they've got facial recognition cameras everywhere. Mm. So you know where you are, and then you get benchmarked against your unique, unique identifier and your face. And it's like, okay, well, if you, you give you bad points, if you do something naughty, you can't even get a flight yeah. out of the country. That's terrible, right? <laughs> You've kind of got layers of things that you, you would want to try to solve and why you would want to solve them. And the only way that solutions will actually... It has to come from government. For example, I'm in like the Lettings Industry Council and there's the Rent Reform Bill. And essentially, I'm in that, that working group to try to respond to the government's levelling up campaign and various other things to, to say, well, this is how the industry would see the proposed changes and how that would affect things. And here's probably a better way to do it. And once you're in those conversations and see what the industry say and what the government say, you'll actually see how many decades you are away from change. Hmm. Because even the sim, if you try, I guess the first thing I realized when I got more people in the team and you're trying to explain to them various other things. And I guess like one thing, I was in class the other week and then I was like, all ah, right, there's seven people in this class and one of us, sometimes mostly me, doesn't pay attention because they're distracted about something else. And then you go, like, you go to an organization, so then that person has to ask a second question. Then you go to a bigger organization or a PwC or a CBRE or something like that, and they have, they have like change workshops and management of change and all that because you have to log in differently. You have to go mm. here, press this blue button, say that red button. And, and then you look at a whole country and how would you change that and how would you yeah. change that structure of how that... And like the level of change and the amount of things that you'd have to do to get 
to even get a UPRN and how all these things, which already exist, they actually get things that already exist to be talking to each other and in the one place. These are things that already exist. The UPRN exists, all the services exist. Everybody has this, everybody can get it. It's public information that you can get the UPRN and all the rest of the stuff, you know? And if you don't know what it is, you can go on the UNO platform and you can figure out your own UPRN. It's on there and you get loads of the free stuff as well. Hashtag sales. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's a free version. Give me a break. So check it out. Yeah. So, so like how you would get to that level of change decades away because, mm. you're, you're, because you, you can't change something about the government and the government are so. So, and you know, trying to do that level of change will take a long, a long, long time. Do you th- do I think we should try? Yeah, we should try. Yeah, should always try. Yeah, very interesting. In summary, to that to to that question, <laughs> the future of prop tech. <laughs> what was the question again? I got, I got. What were we talking about? I've no idea. You think it can change, but it's got to be down to uh, government attitude, government process. Every, all the platforms have to talk to each other. They probably need some sort of unique identifier to do that. They should use EPRN because it's the only thing we've got our hands on just now. And that is what I see the, prop, the future of PropTech, connectivity through unique identification that we can all agree on, and then connectivity through single API, uh, through, through open APIs. Without that, the whole industry is just going to continue to fall on its face. Yeah, working on silos and like not talking to each other. I should have just said that before. You want to cut out all that other rest of that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it will certainly okay. uh, cut our, our editing costs <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> alright let's go off topic a little bit Paul you have you've done like a hell of a lot of stuff by the sound of things well, how do you find the time what's the uh, you must have some interest in like say systems or routines or something that you follow to do so much and fill your time no it's just uh, it's to don't really have a life I guess it's just messy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is my life. Yeah, I think that's it. And and I think that do should could I benefit more from practicing what the industry and um, the, the good things that you're supposed to do, like your morning routine and your bedtime routine, and read this book and do all this sort the of five a.m. club. And I guess that feeds back to that whole thing where it's like, oh, do you actually, you know, you're supposed to learn from other people's mistakes, not just your own ones and stuff like that. Firmly in the camp of making sure I've made all the mistakes myself before even trying to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I agree um, with you. I don't think it's the the right idea, but I guess it's very hard when you don't know. And I guess that comes back to the whole thing. It's just like how do you know what you want to do or how do you know what's right or wrong? And and like so many people's opinions are all over the shop. And I guess just give it a shot, man. Just keep going. Keep falling on your face, man. Yeah, I agree. Was there something like a uh, thing that you learned the most from or something that you'd like to share in terms of like the whole journey? And yeah, is there something that you, you can say that, oh, thanks to this or thanks to this, I understood that blah, blah, blah. And that gave me this it's very specific on the way i need to structure this this is good though because obviously i just go off on tangents so i guess the most important thing so i like i guess on the same vein as the last question it's like do you you know i did have a mentor once he wasn't a paid mentor in fact i had to convince him to mentor me his name was phil laney and he was a fund guy fund manager and, and, and he ended up starting a company called lively which is a social living concept but Phil has a very interesting way of putting things in it and, and I asked him to to give us a, a little bit of a business chat, right? And, uh, you know, start mentoring us. So 
came to the office and me and the guy I was in business with at the time had all of our little documents in a row, you know, like a little marketing pack, some numbers, and, you know, we're like, got this under control. So he came in and all that stuff, how are you doing, Phil? But we sat them all down and we just put, we put the, all the paperwork in front of us, like, cool, what do you want to start on first, you know? He just took the paper and he just pushed it to the side. He says, one thing you have to remember, he says, you have to look after yourself. If you look after yourself, you can look after your team. If your team are looked after, they can look after your customer. If your customers are happy, then your investors will be happy. Mm-hmm. And he walked out of the room and never saw him again until next week. <laughs> and that was it, because that goes back to what you were saying, Owen. There is a work-life balance to everything, and it depends. The very interesting thing was that he was go big or go home. A few months later, he got... £3.5 million pound of VC investment and he had a rent-to-rent company with 10 houses. A man knew how what he was doing and how he was doing it. And I guess from my perspective, we didn't really know what we're doing, but we just wanted to get there. We put everything in to get it. But there is always going to be a cost. And I guess my one of my favorite sayings is there's a cost to absolutely everything. Yeah. yeah. Every decision that you make, every whether it be business or whatever it is, not all decisions have a financial cost. Some have a cost to your health, have a cost to your time, a cost to your relationship, or a cost to your family. And for me, that's always been something in that way up. It's like, what do I want versus what is the cost? Inspirational. No, that's a very good one. It's an opportunity cost. And it's something you never really realize what the, uh, what the cost is until you've made the decision. That's something I struggle to get my head around. And it's like, what decision do you make? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul, uh, where can we find out more about you know and you? Well, hopefully that's everything you know about. You know everything about me now, so that's it done. Uh, but yeah, so I guess I'm on LinkedIn, as as everyone is. And yeah, you know is www.goyuno.com. So G-O-Y-U-N-O.com. What, what does you know stand for? Oh, yeah, so you know, um, well, apart from being a really great name that you can, like your competitor says, did you know that we were better than, you know, or <laughs> know we were better than, I almost said a competitor's name, um, than some other companies. Essentially, that was obviously a really good draw towards it. But it's actually came, come from a Japanese word, word called Yunona. And that's probably not the way how you pronounce it, but that's how you spell it. Um, it's on our website. If you go into why you know, it'll explain. Mm. Uh, and essentially, it means competent, enable, and all the rest of this stuff. So that came back from our consultancy days where we made sure that everybody was qualified, experienced, and accredited. And essentially, actually, it comes down to, in the property industry, is, oh, yeah, I am competent. It's like, well, you're an accountant, but for some reason now you're competent to be a fire risk assessor and competent to be all these other things rather than just being. But when they trained to be an accountant, they had to do lots of other things and pass a, you know, an exam and all the rest of the things. But in the property industry, it's very much like everybody's an expert, mm. everybody's competent. Yeah. And it was the challenge on that, actually, that went, no, our services company or consultancy business is going to stand for something different in the fact that we want everybody qualified, experienced and accredited. And that that then transpired into why we we chose you know now and why we shortened it to you know uh, because it sounds cooler and nobody's going to remember how to spell you know now and they'll let know and you know uh, so there we go. All right, Paul. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Very, always very very good talking to you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.